The following is a conversation about coffee, where it's grown, how its economics works, its amazing supply chain, and then all the way down to the subtleties and nuances between the different species. I was lucky enough to have this conversation with a man who is a world-class authority across all of these topics and more. His name is Ryan Delaney, and he runs the Coffee Trading Academy. Ryan is a veteran of the US military, where he served as a dedicated marksman in Afghanistan in the early 2000s. After his career in the military, he then went on to be educated at Harvard under the GI Bill, and it was there where he discovered his love and passion for coffee. Ryan is both a coffee trader and an educator in the trading of this commodity coffee as well. And like we speak about in the chat, you'll hear how there is a clear distinction between the trading of a commodity and then growing or mining a commodity. This distinction informs much of his worldview and makes for an extremely realistic and objective take on coffee as an industry, coffee as a commodity versus coffee that you consume at Starbucks or coffee as it's grown in the hills of Ethiopia. This distinction between trading a commodity or growing the commodity is the key takeaway to understand Ryan's worldview here. In this chat with Ryan, again, I'm saying Ryan so many times, it feels very bizarre to do. You can hear about the following, the geography of coffee, how climate change in the environment affects the entire coffee market, the legitimacy and how seriously we should take the stamps of the Rainforest Alliance, the UTZ or the Fair Trade, etc. The stupefying efficiency of the entire coffee supply chain. And then plus at the end, we sort of go on a sidebar about the China-US Thucydidean debate on who will actually come out on top as the next superpower. Plus, uh, there is uh, much more as well. So if you're into coffee or the commodities biz, then you should get a lot out of this because Ryan delivers a wealth of knowledge for takeaway. And hang around the end to hear my afterthoughts from this chat. And then as well, I shall describe my ambition for the podcast. With no more from me, here is the man himself, Ryan Delaney. Mr. Delaney, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Pleasure. So your bio reads that you're a coffee guy and that everyone in the industry knows what that means. For those of us outside of the industry, what are you talking about? Sure. Uh, so first of all, you know, you can call me Ryan. It's a strong name. Good name. Uh, <laughs> might get a little confusing, but uh, yeah. Uh, so what is a coffee guy? Uh well, it's basically just people in the industry, so that would be uh, roasters, producers, and traders. Um, I my background is on the trade side, so that you know I'm, I'm more biased in that sense. Um, that's kind of you know where 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 I evolved, and that's that's who we think about as the coffee people. Just sort of like um, you know if you have uh, in, in any sort of commodity desk, and um, they have like oil guys or something like that. And it's all the people who like, you know, they know all the oil industry and they know all that stuff. So, so that's what I mean by, by a coffee person. So it's nurse knowing the industry back to front, inside and out, every angle of it, obsessed with coffee. Yeah. Well, you know, I have a, a mentor and they told me once, uh, I had a mentor who, when I first got in the industry, he said, Ryan, and he, he was like, you know, a very suave Latin American guy. And he was like, he was like, coffee is the jealous mistress. 
you 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 get in but you never really leave <laughs> you know um and i think what he meant by that was that there's so much like information and experience that's so peculiar and focused on coffee that it's not useful anywhere mm. else so like once you start developing all this stuff like you're just kind of like that becomes what you you know you you build on that and you you it doesn't apply necessarily in a lot of other industries so you kind of you know you kind of get stuck in there it's the hotel california you, know? <laughs> you uh you check in but you can never mm. leave um so one of those things in particular is what's called cupping and um if you were looking at getting into the coffee industry at one point in your life maybe you're familiar with this maybe you've done cupping um, but basically it's it's uh sensory analysis right so it's tasting um so it's a cupping coffee is a skill that really it takes years to develop and it's years of of tasting coffee on a daily basis and from all over the world um i mean it's not it doesn't have to be all the world you know you have people from brazil or from vietnam or whatever and they have experience in cupping those particular coffees and they get very good at at the nuances of that but that's just one example of like part of like the very nuanced knowledge that is not relevant anywhere else. Um, so you kind of get sucked into this, mm -hmm. into this world. I suppose that could be, or maybe you tell me, but can that sort of logic apply to any of the specific commodities? Say there might be aspects of the timber industry that is just totally nonsensical to anyone else or is coffee special in that way? I think Probably. I mean, part of it is our own, you know, everyone has their own sort of narcissism and we all think that we're special, you know, in, in whatever way that we <laughs> that we happen yeah. to, to be involved in. But but there is also uh, like you could be a metals trader and you're not necessarily like, oh, I'm a silver guy. Like, I love silver, you know, like so I just, you know, eat, sleep and breathe silver. You know, <laughs> maybe maybe those people mm. exist. I don't know. But I kind of feel like if you're. You, if you trade precious metals, then like you're kind of you're familiar with all of those. Or if you do uh, grains, you have grains guys. They do corn, wheat, you know, um, beans, whatever. Um, so there, I think some people look at the different commodities more as like a a basket. And even you know it, within those industries, you might have like corn people, especially farmers. I mean, farmers are different because farmers, you know, they um, to some degree, they're loyal to the crop, but to some degree, they're like, whatever. If if corn's good, I'm gonna, right. you know, I'm gonna grow corn. But if, if I get a cheap, better I'm, yield I'll from soy, else. I'm going over there. Exactly, but that's not necessarily that's certainly not true with coffee, though, because um, coffee not only is it geographically kind of specific, right? And and all all plants are kind of geographically specific. But coffee needs to be grown. It's a tropical crop that has to be grown um, or, or grows best in the mountains. And not only that, unlike, say, wheat or corn or, or cotton or something, uh, which are row crops, those are annuals, right? So every year that farmer is deciding, what should I plant here? And they, it's often an economic decision. It's not entirely an economic decision. Uh, as, an, as a brief aside, I've been told that... Uh, American and Australian like farmers have uh, like a bias towards planting corn, and the reason why is because they like the way corn looks. They like to go and like, you know, it's almost like a, a macho thing. They're really? like seeing the big <laughs> giant crop, you know, right there. It's like satisfying. So, funny. so they, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, 
other than that, with coffee, because it's a tree crop, you can't just you can't just pull up the trees and plant something mm. else there, right? So you if if you want to plant coffee, you plant it. Uh, even if you buy a sapling, right, a seedling that's a that's a year old, it'll still be probably two or three years until it's producing any coffee and three to five years before it's producing its maximum yield, you know, its primary yield. So it's a commitment from the farmer's perspective. Um, and even the farmer as well, they have to, they, they're, they're usually pretty well versed in like the quality of the crop, yeah. right? Usually it's a generalization. It depends um, from region to region. And so same with uh, traders of coffee, you know, think of it more like wine. If you're a wine trader, you know, you're not really someone who's like, oh, I could trade wine. I could trade trinkets. I could trade, you know, uh, you know, donuts. I don't know. <laughs> uh, if you trade wine, you have a specific set of like experiences and knowledge and, and that's that's relevant to that. And there's such a range in wine as well, right? Um, so th that's that's kind of the ways that I would I would think that it's sort of unique. Mm. And um, I want to get into the geospecific breakdown of how coffee is distributed. But before I do that, you mentioned that there not all cases is coffee grown at altitude. I was under the impression that that was kind of a prerequisite to coffee. What is an example of it being grown at sea level? Well, I don't know if it's grown at sea level, um, but in any origin that grows coffee they you have a range of altitudes mm. and so for example in honduras you have high grown coffee and you have low grown coffee right um i don't know the exact difference between those two in terms of like the altitude like this coffee is only okay. like you know, so you don't know what the lower bound would be 100 meter no i but um but i've seen coffee grown in disney world <laughs> And we had coffee grown in uh, in my office in New York. Yeah, <laughs> we had coffee. Yeah. That was uh, so the 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 altitude is not necessary for the plant to exist, but what the altitude does is it makes for a denser bean. Okay. So um, that is considered desirable. Interesting. Yeah. And so, could you broad strokes map of the world how coffee settles into it? And so we've got the x amount of degrees north and south of the equator and then in mountainous regions mm -hmm. could you just break that down for us where is our coffee coming from for sure and tonnage amounts as well if possible just to give a sense of the scale of this industry yeah absolutely so if you think about the world uh the globe and i see you've got one behind you there <laughs> uh is uh you have the tropic of cancer and the tropic of capricorn and and those two bands uh dictate the tropics and it's basically you know a, a set amount of miles or kilometers or whatever above and below the equator so anywhere that is tropical within that band and has mountains or you know uh, higher elevated areas is going to grow coffee for the most part by the way did you know that there's coffee grown in australia yes i did uh, i actually like really want to get my hands northwest on some, but yeah <laughs> it's a very small portion yeah, of the country i've never in the, seen it tropics in retail I just imagine that's because it's ridiculously expensive, but yeah, yeah I did see, I, 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 I've got this great uh, photo, I, maybe I'll send it to you after, but it was a book in a bar, in a pub I was sitting in, and it was coffee, 
I was like, all right, interesting. And I was just flicking through it, and then it showed this great map of the hotspots. And yeah, there was one in one in Australia, up in the yeah, north, North the Queensland, northwest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> did you and, try it? Um, there, I've, I haven't. I've, okay. I've 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 been to Australia. I took a commodity course there uh, years ago in uh, Melbourne, um, but those were mostly uh, you know cotton guys, and you know I think. The, there's a lot of uh, a lot of row crops in, mm. in Australia. It's, it's funny, not to bring it too much on a tangent, but the cotton industry is being lambasted at the moment in Australia. It's the absolute really? enemy of the people. Yeah, for so long we never <laughs> we never thought about it because we sort of knew that co- uh, cotton was grown in Australia, very organic, high quality, all the X's and O's. But recently, yeah. um, a lot of attention has been drawn to the amount of water that's used for the cotton crops and where that water is actually coming from. Mm. And Australia is famously a drought-ridden country. I remember growing up, we had loads of water restrictions. You couldn't wash your car, for example. Um, there were, you know, if you watered your grass, you'd get evil eyes from all the neighbors. So, <laughs> in a country that's very, very strict on water, you know, you have these huge acreages of cotton, which is an extremely water required that's the wrong phrasing but needs loads and loads of yeah. water so they've actually become a bit it's of an, an enemy um prior now yeah. like a cultural shift <laughs> yeah yeah that's funny um yeah i mean i don't know the i don't know the politics or even this the s and d really of water because i know that like that's you know it's a in some places that is essentially a commodity too that's 100 you know, yeah. that's either scarce or or, or plentiful um, and there's also coffee grown in South Africa too. I actually spoke with a South African who does, who said he, he grows coffee. I was like, okay, that's the first. But anyway, I, we started with the two of the most abstract yes. origins. That's, that is not the coffee world. So Brazil is really the center of the coffee world. And, uh, Vietnam is the other pole, right? If we had two origins, uh, that were, that are really define coffee, but, um, so if we're talking about size, let's say hypothetically the world grows uh, 160 million bags of coffee, right? Um, per year. 40% of that per year. 40% of that is produced in Brazil, okay? Uh, maybe 20% of that is, is produced in, in Vietnam, okay? Um, and it depends on the type of coffee too. There's Arabica and Robusta, and we can chat about that later. Um, but Brazil is really the dominant force in, in the coffee world. Um, and then the sort of historical region, I'd say with the traditional coffee regions from an American perspective would be, would be Central America and Colombia. So that's, um, that's, uh, where we tend to think of our coffee being grown and, you know, it's, it's close to us. And so that's where we, we get a lot of our coffees. Um, in, in Europe, you're probably getting more, uh, East African coffee um, and Asian coffee uh, as well on top of that. You're also getting Brazil and Central America uh, as well, um, but but that's sort of how the dynamics play out. It's, and it's largely a matter of logistics, right? It's like which shipping line, lanes uh, easily transport coffee to your regions, right? It's also about preferences and... Um, and um, uh, cost, you know, those are, those are important too. Um, so if we're talking about, uh, so we can divide the coffee world into North and South and East and West, I guess. So, uh, on, in the Western hemisphere, we have Central America, uh, specifically what we call maybe the super six. So you have Honduras, uh, you have Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala, um, South, uh, Mexico, 
sort of Chiapas area. Um, you have uh, um, also Colombia is considered one of the milds as well, sort of in that basket. Uh, and then Brazil, as we mentioned, there's some smaller, there's some other origins in there that also produce coffee, Peru and um, Ecuador and such. Um, but those those are the big ones in the Western Hemisphere. And then you have East African coffee. You have coffee uh, grown in Kenya and Uganda, um, Tanzania, uh, and um, the Congo. You have a little bit of West African coffee in uh, Ivory Coast and um, in that area. And uh, and then you have Asia. And then in Asia, Vietnam, as I mentioned, is sort of like the workhorse of coffee. They produce, say, 30 million bags of low quality but cheap coffee that that supplies a lot of the world with mm. robusta <clears throat> and then you have uh indonesia as well so you know if you think about uh the island of java is, is a historical place where, where mm. coffee has been grown so that's where we get the word java from right that's uh yeah we say like a cup of java or whatever um that's that's in, based in indonesia um and uh those are your your primary origins. Um, oh, I should have mentioned in Africa also you have Ethiopia. Ethiopia is mm. a big uh, producer of coffee as well. Also the home of and, coffee, uh, right? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I think Yemen it might be considered where coffee's from, but right around that mm -hmm. sort of that sort the of the Horn of Africa. And yeah, and and Ethiopia has a really cool coffee culture too they have got a whole coffee ceremony there where you really like, oh, cool when you yeah um which i've never seen i've never i've never been to ethiopia <laughs> um but so that's kind of an overview of the of the world and then you have the north and the south which is important if you're a trader because the uh depending on where you are in relation to the equator is is depends when the, the crop is harvested so uh the northern hemisphere crops are october crops and then the southern hemisphere crops are sort of like april may mm. um is their harvest and um so when i first moved to sweden i thought my business was going to be creating the specialty coffee brand and did a bunch of research into ah, cool. how it all works and so forth it, it ended up going very very cold on ice but it was <laughs> at least for a time there i thought it'd be interesting and um could you also correct my understanding of well of that geospecific breakdown that basically starting in vietnam and then going west um, or east doesn't really matter but you basically go robusta through asia then into east africa and then you get into the arabica as you're coming back over to latin america and so mm. could you correct if that's a you know a, as a pretty broad strokes uh, that's a that's a pretty good broad stroke so i mean if we're talking about types of coffee right so or you know species right you've got the arabica plant and you have the robusta plant and you have a few other secondary types of coffee that are not very popular, not very widely grown. Like there's Excelsa coffee, I think, which is like these very big, tall trees that make a like sort of a, a weird-looking coffee bean, football-shaped, interesting you know, football okay. coffee. <laughs> never bean. heard of that. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, almost never. I've seen them once in Uganda, um, <clears throat> but. For the most part, you have Arabica and Robusta, right? And so if you were a specialty, interested in a specialty market, you were probably looking at Arabica's. Um, and so Arabica's considered the better quality coffee, the nicer tasting coffee. It's also the more sort of fickle, right? It's a little bit harder to grow. Um, and Robusta, as the name implies, is 
cheaper, hardier, and easier to grow, and you know, often grown in, in light, uh, maybe lower grown areas. But the other interesting thing about Robusta is that it's higher in caffeine. And not only is it higher in caffeine, uh, but and I'm I'm going deep into coffee nerd lore here. No, so that's good. This is yeah. <laughs> interesting. But uh, uh, is that um, robusta also has higher concentration of uh, oils in it, and so even though arabica it tends to be an, a nicer flavor and and people like the the taste of it better, it has more acidity and all these other things, uh, positive qualities. Uh, Robusta is actually desirable um, for uh, espresso. So if you ever have an espresso, there's a little foam on the top of the espresso called the crema. And uh, because of those oils in the Robusta, it, they say that it makes a nicer crema. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's counterintuitive. Yeah. Because you would think yeah. that you want your espresso to be the highest quality bean that you could get your hands on. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and it's often a blend, so it's not... Yeah. Only th- those usually, but uh, but that's those are desirable for that. And also, you know, people just some people like a you know a quote stronger coffee. They want more caffeine, mm-hmm. so um, so you'll see some of that as well. And it's interesting oh, to know you said yeah. robusta was higher in caffeine. It's almost two yeah. x, right? It's almost double the amount of caffeine, so it's significantly higher. That sounds right, but I I, I don't know. Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because you can just, uh, it makes sense then what the commercial uh, value might be for a Robusta then. If it gives you more caffeine, it's easier to grow, and it's uh, It's really about overall. the price though. Yeah. I mean, I, I gave you some of the kind of, you know, side interests in Robusta. And there's been the movements as well to talk about like, let's just appreciate Robusta for what it is. Let's not, you know... You know, so there's been talk that maybe, you know, maybe what we think of as good coffee and good tasting coffee isn't really better. It's more just what Arabica tastes like. And maybe we should just appreciate Robusta for the way that, that tastes. And, uh, so there's a, there's an organization called um, Specialty Coffee Association. Um, it used to be SCAAA. Which is Specialty Coffee Association of America, and then they had SCAE, which is Specialty Coffee Association of Europe. Uh, but I think they might have merged. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. But um, at any rate, so the SCAA um, and the Coffee Quality Institute (CQI). Um, so you didn't know all these crazy organizations existed, right? <laughs> they have a whole criteria and process for sensory evaluation. Right? We talked about cupping earlier. Uh, of Arabica coffees and specialty coffees. And so they had this whole crazy little form you fill out. Now it's probably an app, but it used to be on paper and you would you would score all these different sensory aspects of your specialty Arabica coffee. And so when I was in Uganda, they had, were experimenting with what they called an R grader. So that was that's a Q grader that does Arabica, right, for quality. And then the R grader, R for Robusta, they invented this new sensory evaluation form and everything for the, the Robustas. And so uh, Uganda is known for their, 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 their high quality Robusta, which is almost an oxymoron, but not quite. And, uh, and so they invented this there and we were evaluating these R grading forms to like sensory, do a sensory evaluation. But that's a little controversial. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to some specialty people about that, and they're like, oh, that's that's garbage. Robusta's mm. terrible. Arabica's good. Like, <laughs> there's a reason for that. Don't don't mess with it. But just give it I'm, – I'm presenting you both sides, and you can do with that what you will. Um, 
talk to me a little bit about how the market of coffee as a commodity is significantly different to thinking about it as a everyday product that we consume. Mm-hmm. Um, does that question make sense? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so like, I mean, there's sort of two different perspectives, right? You've got your, I mean, there's plenty of different perspectives on it, but I think what you're kind of getting at it is like, Hey, I'm, I go into the grocery store or a coffee shop and I want to buy a cup of coffee. And I think about it as, you know, a food item essentially that I'm going to consume. Um, but traders look at it as a commodity Mm. and it's, it's controversial as a commodity. And a part of that has a lot to do with who the consumer of coffee is. Right. Um, and so I, coffee is like, if you think about your stereotypical barista or, um, you know, coffee shop, coffee snob, right. Mm. There's lots of them um, in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, they're all over (laughs) there. Um, they, you know, they're very socially conscious, right? They they tend to be very progressive and, you know, uh, forward thinking and all these these things. So that doesn't necessarily jive with, um, you know, hardcore capitalism and, you know, free markets. So there is like some pushback there. And so so that's why I say like the coffee trading world is like kind of this weird mix of these two sort of groups because the in some sense the consumer demands like a more compassionate um progressive uh supply chain Mm. but that's not how traditional commodity markets work right so i i'm and, and if we think about the you know the the history of coffee the history of coffee has always been kind of progressive at least since the enlightenment right when they first started coming up with these coffee houses it was an alternative to pubs, right? You had, you had pubs in in the UK, and then you, in you know, say the, the 18th century or whatever, um, and then you had coffee houses, and these were places where, unlike the pub, where you get stupider the more you drink, uh, and, and when you drink when you're having coffee with people, then like you get more and more wound up, right? <laughs> so people would, uh, you know, that's why I say I sort of tongue-in-cheek say coffee is responsible for the Enlightenment, right? Because all these people were in coffee houses discussing these high-minded ideals and whatever. Um, so coffee is a commodity, and I, I teach this in my course. And people don't, a lot of people in coffee don't like that idea. They don't like to say coffee is a commodity. They're like, no, coffee is not a commodity. Coffee is all these wonderful things, right? But it's not a commodity. Why do we say that it is a commodity? And, and I guess that begs the question, or, or raises the question what what is a commodity right and so a commodity is uh it's a raw it's a raw ingredient to manufactured goods and it's also uniform right so like gold is an example of a commodity and gold is gold right so it's you can melt down gold and it's indistinguishable from other gold right if you think about agricultural commodities you have corn and when you when you're buying corn, you're not like picking out individual kernels of corn. You buy bags and bags of corn, right? You're like it's all the same. I just want to buy corn, right, or wheat or whatever. And so, coffee is a, is a commodity in the sense that when you're buying coffee beans, you're not picking out the beans, right? It's it's supposed to be to some degree indistinguishable. Now, that does not completely match up with what we think of 
especially in the specialty side, right? Because if you're buying specialty coffee, then it's more like the wine analogy. Then you're saying, okay, I want a single origin Guatemalan, uh, you know, strictly high grown coffee from the uh, whatever region, the Weiwei Tenango region of, of Guatemala, right? Um, and uh, and so then that is not a commodity in the sense that you can't replace that with a Vietnamese Robusta and say that it's the same thing, right? Um, but they they are commodities, especially if we look at we have futures markets for coffee. We have a we have a coffee futures markets, and um, that coffee futures market is is created from a basket of eligible origins, eligible qualities of coffee. And so the futures market then represents essentially this basket of coffees that, that can be deliverable to the exchange. Now, one of the things that's beneficial about that, and in my class, I, I, I use the example of gold and golden artifacts, right? So if you've ever been to Colombia, if you've ever been to if you go to Bogota, the capital of, of, of Colombia, there's a museum there called the Museo del Oro. And the Museo del Oro has all of these golden artifacts from the Incas and the Aztecs and the, you know, the, the indigenous peoples of those regions that were made you know, pre-Spanish explorers. And many of them were made of gold. Museo del Oro is you know, a museum of gold, right? Um, so the value of those artifacts is not the fact that they're made from gold, right? In many ways, the gold that's within the artifact is the least valuable thing about it, right? You could melt down this little tiny, you know, Incan treasure ship uh, that's, you know, mm. this big, and maybe it's worth $2,000 worth of gold. I don't know, I'm just mm. throwing a number out there. No, yeah, its value is the artificial scarcity of it being a piece of history. Exactly, right? It's the artisanship, the, the scarcity, the history, uh, all these different things. But it's still made from a commodity. But we can say that the value of this piece of art is, is we, can, we can isolate the value of that piece of art uh, by separating it from the value of the commodity, if that makes sense. So just in the same way, we can look at like this, that Guatemalan coffee I just mentioned, and we can say that is worth, let's say it costs $3 per pound. It's not what it costs, but let's say it costs $3 per pound. And the futures market is trading at 250, then you can say that particular coffee is worth 50 cents more than the commodity, than the generic coffee. So the futures so, market is literally bundling in all of coffee together. You're not buying specific markets of the Wawitanga high grown Guatemalan coffee, you're buying just coffee. Right. The futures market is a basket. So that seems like sets... such an inefficiency in pricing. Oh, no, it's not at all. It's uh, because it provides liquidity. Okay. You know, so the, the, the reason that it's useful is because that is your, I mean, that's your baseline, right? So um, when you, when you buy that Weiwei Tenango coffee or whatever, um, the reason that it's easy to buy is because of the futures market. So, um, and and some super specialty coffees have less of a relation to 
the the futures market but if it but most of them are have some you know relative uh correlation with it now the reason that it, traders are successful and the traders are a necessary part of the supply chain is because the trader takes on price risk that the producer and the consumer do not want okay so the producer wants to sell their coffee for a high price and the consumer wants to buy their coffee for a low price and the way that that's possible is because of the futures market so the trader will buy coffee from the producer and give them a high price and sell a future against it right so they've bought coffee and they've hedged it with a future and then they turn around and they can sell that to a uh, consumer of coffee for a low price and the way that they do that is then at the lower price they will buy back their short future and sell the uh, the physical so the trader does not have any price risk themselves um, on the, the majority of that coffee because it's been hedged in the futures market but because they were hedged they were able to give a high price to the producer and they were able to give it a low price to the consumer does that make sense look i uh don't <laughs> understand the trading component of it so um although everything you said made sense the overall idea of it did go over my head so could you uh explain that last bit again why say the what it means that the traders provide liquidity and therefore what it means to be selling a futures contract for example i suppose like how, do, how does all this pricing work and so forth okay yeah so i mean when you hedge something you you need to have a derivative and that's what derivatives are for right uh derivatives exist because of price risk so this is one of the things i talk about in my class is i'm like okay in in one sense a derivative seems kind of stupid right because you're like it's an asset whose value is derived from another asset so it's this one fake asset here that's value is derived from another asset that doesn't make any sense why not just trade the asset right so in our case we're talking about coffee so we have coffee that's a real thing that people are buying and drinking and that costs money mm. then we have a future and the future the value of that future is based on the value of the physical now why would we have that well we have that because of price risk so if you are a trader your job is to buy really what you do a big part of your job as a trader is, is logistics what it is is it's moving stuff from point a to point b if we think about like ancient traders right um in the middle ages or whatever what do they do they go from one place and buy stuff and they bring it to another place and they sell it right and that's that's like that was a valuable service right yeah, that's really what, what traders are still doing right They're especially going to, when it's super high risk to transport things right yeah well especially now right that's a big big issue yeah. But even even if it wasn't high risk, right? If you were a, a roaster, you were look thinking about opening up coffee, um, doing coffee business in in Sweden. Mm. How you know it is beyond your ability, at least in a cost-effective way, to know all of the different producers in Brazil, in Colombia, in Honduras, in Nicaragua, you know, etc., and all the ones in in Asia, right? So. You know, even if you knew a hundred of them in each country, right, which would be a very small percentage, like that's really that's a lot of work for you. 
Or you can go to a trader and say, I want to buy Colombian coffee. And they can say, okay, which one do you want? You know, and they've, they, they have all the relationships. They have all the risk. Um, but let's say you're a trader. Okay. So your business is to buy up coffee from people who are growing it. Right. And those producers of coffee, they want to get rid of it. They want to sell their coffee. Right. They don't want to bring bags of coffee to Europe and like talk to every roaster there and say, would you mm. try my coffee? You know, and, and they'd rather have a trader there, you know, with a warehouse right next to their farm who says, I will buy all of your coffee, bring it to me. Yeah. Right. So that's what the trader does. So if you imagine the trader, they've got a, a warehouse full of coffee somewhere. So if they buy that coffee from farmers and the price of coffee goes down, they've lost money. Right. So what the trader does is they buy the coffee from the farmer. And at the same time that they buy that, they sell a futures market, which is, you can think of it, it's not fake, but think of it as a fake asset, right? Mm -hmm. It's like an ETF or something, or, you know, a stock market. It's just whatever. a financial asset, financial product. Right. That, and that financial product makes money when the, the coffee market goes up and it loses money when the coffee market goes down. Yeah. So if you, if you trade an opposite position to your physical coffee, so if you own physical coffee and you've sold futures against that, if the price goes up, you don't make any money. If the price goes down, you don't lose any money. Mm -hmm. Now that's beneficial because you buy that coffee from the producer. It's hedged now. And then when the price of coffee goes down, you haven't lost any money, but you still own that coffee. And you can turn around to the consumer and say, hey, the prices are cheap now. Do you want to buy some of my coffee? And they say yes. So you sell them, to them that coffee at the cheap price. And because it's then you just lift your hedge at the same time that you sell that to them. So I don't know if that... No, that that actually that yeah that explained it really well. Um, okay, for sure. If we're thinking more about trading coffee or the commodity market for coffee, uh, your job, you know, your competitive advantage, whatever, is just having some sort of good information or unique insight or very in depth. So, I wonder what you think about. Um, how you can price in climate change into your strategy. So I know it's a big question, but how does the market respond and how do you think about how the coffee commodity responds to the threat of climate change, both pricing in the potential future risk based off a model that has been wrong a hundred times and might be wrong again versus how it affects farmers versus the rest? Yeah, I mean, climate change is, <laughs> it's one of those sort of controversial topics. Um, and it's really only controversial, I think, because people get emotional about it. Um, if we could just look at the data and, and talk about it and whatever, then like, that would be fine. Uh, but it's not. I think people on both sides get very sort of like upset about climate change, right? Um, but in general, I would say the people in the coffee industry are very, what's the word? Um, maybe I was going to say into climate change, but maybe that's not the right way to phrase it. They're very like, they're very knowledgeable about climate change and they mm. are active in thinking about they have mitigating. a big interest in understanding how it's going to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it's very relevant to everybody in the supply chain, right? So if you need coffee, and we talked about where coffee is produced in the world. 
um, then if the climate is changing and the evidence seems to support that, then that's going to change the dynamic of, of where coffee is produced and how much it's produced. So everyone in the, in the chain is, is, is worried about that and, 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 and following it. Um, now, what is not clear to me is what can be done about climate change. You know, and I'm not an expert on that, but there's no data that I'm aware of that says, like, if we do X, Y will happen. It's mostly like we know these things are happening and we think that they that the climate is changing in this way. And we think these things are causing those. So uh, the best we can sort of say is, like, if we stop doing these things that seem to be contributing to climate change, hopefully that will help. Right. But we don't. We don't really have a number that says like we need to reach this level of emissions and then and then things are fine. <laughs> to, to my knowledge, I don't think we have that that number. Uh, and so I don't know what the industry is doing to, to combat climate change per se. Although I know that a lot of the coffee companies and the trade houses have you know you know, net zero goals and, you know, they've got all they're, they're aware of and, and, and part of the discussion. But I also know that at the producer level, um, the coffee industry has been very into the environment for a long time, right? You probably are familiar with Rainforest Alliance. Um, that's, that's a pretty old organization now. And, you know, and I'm not sure exactly when that was started, but probably in the eighties, the but, you know, before or 70s, maybe um, it was, you know, it was before people were talking about climate change, per se, it was more like that started under the kind of the save the rainforest type of uh, movements, you know, when when people were concerned about sort of the slash and burn. Uh, yeah, classic environmentalism, people don't like seeing forests deforested. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's kind of become part of the, you know, the discussion on climate change, too, is, you know, like, greenhouse gas emissions, and, um, you know, and, uh Plants obviously are, are part of that. I'm not a scientist, so I'm kind of I'm talking here. But I can tell you that 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 those certifications are a big part of the coffee industry, and those certifications include a lot of environmentally safe practices. So mm. um, that is that's grown from like a fringe part of coffee in the '90s to uh, a mainstay of coffee now where you've got fair trade organic, you've got rainforest Alliance, like all of these things. And those are in, in, in putting on environmental standards, uh, imposing environmental standards, uh, in cooperation with the farmers. Um, since you brought up the rainforest Alliance, I did have a specific question on it because it basically comes down to how much skepticism should we have over the, uh, validity of a rainforest tick of approval or a UTZZ certified, mm. um, you know, or a fair trade certification or the no dolphins harmed certification. You know, I read in a Starbucks, I was in Gran Canaria recently, mm. so a Spanish island, and in the Starbucks there, it has proudly said on the wall, 99% of our beans are ethically sourced. Yeah. And I get that that's a nice sentiment, but I was like, wait a minute, you're Starbucks. You're literally buying thousands of tons of beans a year. Are you telling me one percent of those are not ethically sourced? Because that's <laughs> hundreds of small farms. In fact, that's hundreds of big farms. And so um, I heard that, and then there was an, another anecdote that a um, international journalist came 
on the show and spoke about cacao and the industry there as well and how Nestle mm. egregiously will sort of rope in a bunch of good suppliers into their supply chain and then a few really bad ones. But <laughs> yeah. because there are good ones in there and they all go to the same warehouse somewhere, they can say this is this line of care. Anyway, all of that being said, um, as someone who has traveled the world to presumably hundreds of small farms now and hundreds of different warehouses, how much skepticism should one have over a one of these ticks of approval? You know, mm. that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I can answer that directly, but I can kind of talk about it a little bit in the sense that I think from the company's perspective, I mean, you've got a bunch of different perspectives, and one of them is the consumer, right? And the consumer. Um, the consumer's got a lot going on, right? When you go to a grocery store, how much time do you have to go, you know, you go, but you buy some eggs, you get some milk, you get some coffee. Like how much time do you have to investigate the source of all of those different things that you're dealing with in a daily life, right? Even if you think the eggs are pretty good, you know, and they've even got a stamp of certification on it that says cage-free eggs, mm. you know, are you going to do your due diligence on that stamp, you know, and go, go talk to the people who gave you that stamp and say like, okay, well, what do you mean by cage free? Cause I've heard that when you say cage free, that just means that it's, it's a, you know, it's still a mega farm, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like they're happy chickens, you know, they're burning off the beaks or whatever and doing all these terrible things. So this consumer's got a lot going on. And so I think these certifications are a really useful tool for the consumer because it provides transparency and accountability so they can look, you know, they've got, you know, they're, they're, one thing they can do is they can say, when I go to a coffee shop, I want to go to a coffee shop that cares about these things and, and has a way of demonstrating that to me. And one of the ways they can demonstrate that to you is through the certifications. And when you have a certification, we've sort of divvied up the labor and the people in the world who care the most about, uh, environmentalism and uh, um, you know fair trade practices and stuff they go and work for these organizations right and what the the benefit that those organizations provide um, in addition to the actual work they're doing on the farm and with the people involved in it is they are a third party right they're not the coffee company themselves telling you that everything's fine right they're a third party that goes in there and checks it they have their set of standards and everything, and they have legal teams that will prosecute people if someone is using their, um, you know, logo or whatever inappropriately or not living up to their end of the bargain. So at some point, you have to kind of trust that, and it's up to the consumer to say, okay, well, I'll do my due diligence on fair trade and, and Rainforest Alliance and stuff and see if I agree with what those things are. Um, but then they, but then they're doing me a service by putting their stamp on that bag of coffee. And then that's a shorthand for me to know, like, okay, I can choose this and you'll have to pay a little bit of a premium to get it, but you, you'll, you'll do it. Now to answer your question, how much skepticism should they have? It depends. Um, in my limited experience in this, um, the, these organizations are, are quite thorough and they care a lot about, um, the outcome, right? They care about what it is that they're putting their seal of approval on. Um, 
and but they have specific standards and sometimes there is gray area like for example child labor if you have a farmer in Uganda and he has a two hectare farm right which is not super small for him for in terms of those farmers there that might be a big farmer um so he has a family with you know a wife and maybe he's got four children and maybe he hires two laborers to help him you know i'm just making these numbers up but do we tell them your children can't help you on the farm because i mean i don't know if you grew up on a farm in australia but uh, you know i've got friends i've got australian friends uh who are farmers and they from the time they were a kid they were helping on the farm you know and that's that's sort of historically true um and then so then it's like okay well one th- it's one thing if your kids help you on the farm but what we really don't want is to like pull kids out of schools right and have mm. some kind of like horrible slave labor situation right because mm. so, there are copious amounts of examples of that in corresponding industries you know famously like the salt pits not salt pits the sand mines of cameroon are just littered with kids that should be in school the cacao industry even the mm. banana trade the vanilla trade it seems like quite rampant particularly in africa it's not just some guy's kids it's it's yeah i mean and you have camel jockeys and you have you know you have you know child prostitution and all kinds of like atrocities around the world and you know there's um so i think i want to say in cacao it might be more prevalent um but uh and and i don't i i you know my business is mostly on researching um you know the the global supply and demand of coffee and talking about the features and options of it. I lived and worked in origin, uh, buying coffee. I lived in Uganda for uh, a year and I lived in India for uh, a couple of years as well. Um, sourcing coffee and, and trading it. And, um, and so I, and I, and throughout my time as a coffee trader, uh, as well, I've, I've visited, uh, I've done crop tours in, in numerous countries and, um, you know, many different continents, and so I, I have connection to it and I have experience with it. Um, but I think that would really require some de- dedication and investigation <laughs> to, 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 to find out the answer to that question, right? Because mm. the, on the surface, they're telling you it's not happening, right? Um, mm. I think it's a liability. And this is, a, this is a, I think, a triumph of the coffee industry in the last 30 years or whatever is that and and i and i would say that coffee is ahead of most agricultural commodities in this sense that um no one wants to be involved it's a liability if you if you if if someone finds out you have child labor in your supply chain you know Mm. if you're in nestle and it's not like nestle owns these farms right but they and they might buy it from a, a an international trade house and this international trade house might have bought it from a local trader that sold it to them. And that local trader might have bought it from hundreds of different farmers. And if, mm-hmm. if they find out somewhere that there was a child labor or slave labor involved in that, like that would be a huge headache for, for Nestle. Right? Oh, for sure. They yeah. don't want that. And that's, that's really why we have this whole concept of traceability and certification, right? 
because it's traceability is about exactly that. It's about following that bean of coffee from the coffee cup all the way back to the farm. And so a lot of these big, you know, giant coffee trading firms have whole departments dedicated to traceability because they want to sell when they sell their coffee beans to their clients, they want to sell to them this a certified, you know, this is true and you can count it and it's provable um, that there's no nefarious activities going on with that. So that's a big part mm. of, of the industry. Now, does, does, does some wiggling happen around with that? Yes. And, and I'll tell you where, where you should be skeptical about it and where, where there is a lot of wiggle room is if you're buying, if you buy uh rainforest Alliance coffee, Right. If you're a trader and you're buying locally from Rainforest Alliance Farms, right? Now, there is some opportunity for the trader to be like, well, technically this batch here is the Rainforest Alliance coffee, but this other batch here actually tastes better. So we're going to just switch the the labels on those two bags, right? Not saying anybody does that. But that is theoretically possible. It would be unethical, right? Mm-hmm. It would be kind of lying. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, if they've bought that coffee, it, it, it's almost like a carbon credit, right? It's like from, from, from you know, maybe a less ethical perspective, you could say, well, on the, the net basis. It still did its job. Yeah, exactly. I still did it what I was trying to do. But those beans mm-hmm. that you have bought that might be in your bag of coffee even though it says Rainforest Alliance on it, could actually not be that other one. Now, I will also say <laughs> uh, that Rainforest Alliance and all these organizations have people that investigate this stuff, and and they can go to the warehouse and, and, and look and make sure that it's happening properly. So there are no. sort of checks and balances on it, but that, that would be one way that someone could try to fudge the system. Mm. Um, I suppose, I mean, not being an insider or anything but just from an outside perspective i suppose like you said coffee is uh much better than a lot of other commodities when it comes to this i suppose you could say anecdotally it's true it's not like it's a an illegal copper mine or a you know super uh uh or, or a horrible mono soy crop that required salted soil in a deforested amazon to grow <laughs> right. or one of these you know or just a a forest being chopped down for its wood, like in Romania, I- Ikea got into a lot of trouble recently because they chopped down this very, very old forest in Romania to get, uh, you know, wood. Mm. Um, comparatively, coffee might be good, but this also was a reflection of just, I suppose, most commodities. What about the environmental damage of uh, a lot of coffee? Because just to say quickly, anecdotally, Nestle, who I think are uh, net the largest purchasers of coffee in the world, they... Uh, putting pressure on this very small group of thinkers in the southeast hills of Veracruz. And uh, I was in Mexico last year with my mate uh, who runs a coffee shop there. And we went up to see where he got his beans from. It was a fascinating day because these very small farm owners took us through, showed us theirs, showed us the corresponding properties, the difference in like the satiated soil, the difference Mm -hmm. in the land. One was a monoculture, one was a more wild um, forest-ish, not forest, but wild uh, plants and native plants stayed in the soil created more biodiversity in the soil etc basically just meant nicer coffee but they were 
essentially getting priced out by Nestle um, because they would essentially make more money than what they do right now, which is just a little bit better than average. They would become rather relatively wealthy people because their land is worth a lot. And the environmental consequence of that would be that this very organic um, Arabica is going to be replaced by this very cheap uh, Robusta because it grows faster and more reliably. And it will turn out crop after crop after crop until the soil's worth nothing, etc. Mm. So that's a lot just to say, if you could comment on some of the environmental damage of coffee generally. Um, and like I said, I'm not picking on coffee. It's like you said, sure, it's probably yeah. the best of all the commodities, but it's still interesting. And I think inevitable thing to think about when you're preparing to speak with an expert in the coffee industry, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, environmental damage is also subjective right so for example let's say um, let's say we're talking about wheat right if you want to grow wheat um, you need a like a prairie and like one thing I've heard is that um, like the Midwest of the United States is there's almost zero prairie left. Like there used to be just prairies and that was a, um, that was a habitat, right? It, it had biodiversity, it had sustainability, like it, it would renew itself as a prairie. And there were certain insects that lived there. There were birds and fish and animals and everything that all were part of this habitat. And that's basically gone. There's, there's almost zero prairie. I'm not an expert on this. It's just stuff I've heard, so I could be wrong on all this. Um, so from that perspective, you could say that like the wheat, wheat is terrible, right? It's it's completely replaced this entire ecosystem, right? And so I imagine that there's probably wherever you're planting coffee, you're essentially replacing an environment, right? Like there was something there before the coffee. It was it might have been rainforest or could have been just, you know, mountainous environmental spot. So that's one area where there's really no way around it. If you have any kind of farm, you're replacing an environment with with an unnatural environment that you're cultivating. Now, there's you have other environmental aspects too, like okay, is this uh are we creating emissions, right? And most of coffee is picked by hand. There's very little farm equipment when it comes to coffee. The, the notable exception is Brazil. And that's because in, in these mountainous uh, regions, you, you, you can't really just take your big John Deere tractor and, and drive it across it and, and pick the, the coffee. And even if you could, um, coffee is grown, is, 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 it's a berry, right? It's a cherry. So it, it, do, it doesn't ripen all at the exact same time. And so if you want to get the best cherries, what you do is you go through, you see which ones are ripe and you pick those by hand. And uh, those are your, your ripe cherries. And you have to go through several times to get all the ripe ch cherries. That's crazy. I had, I had no idea the majority was still handpicked. It's crazy. It's so cheap considering that. Yeah. Well, it, and, and labor is uh, labor is always an issue, or often an issue, right? Um, and that's why I think I think that might be why a lot of farms are small, 
eighty percent of they say eighty percent of farms coffee farms are smallholder farms. They're two hectares or less, right? Um, so it's not it's not a problem in that sense, I guess. There's not except for Brazil, where you have you have big machines going through and 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 doing this by uh, by machine. Most of the places it's it's by hand. Um, but I imagine there's other environmental costs as well. Like if you're putting in fertilizers and stuff that are not, uh, you know, that, that maybe the, there's water runoff or something. But that is also where the certification comes in, um, is that the Rainforest Alliance especially, but OOTS and um, our, our fa uh, Fairtrade Organic, and these other things, they have standards on what what are good practices for those areas, and you know what's um, what what is the most sustainable and environmentally friendly way to to grow coffee, um, and that really has to be driven by the consumer, right? If the consumer only cares about buying the cheapest coffee available, then that's what they're going to get. That gets passed through the supply chain, and if the mm. if the consumer wants environmentally certified, environmentally friendly, you know, ethically sourced coffee, then, then they have to, they have to buy that, you know, I don't yeah. know if that answers your question, but <laughs> I wonder it, 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 it's, it's also kind of like a harsh truth, isn't it? It's like in the face of everyone complaining about the woes of the world. Well, how much do you actually, you know, vote with your wallet? Yeah. Um, is there any, you know, you could apply the same to, say, fast fashion, mm. arguably one of the worst environmental practices that has increasingly become worse and more prevalent as climate change has become more knowledgeable. So it's, mm. you know, it runs convex to each other, which doesn't make any sense. So is there any way... And I know this isn't within your maybe your specific realm of expertise, but I'm sure it's something you've thought about. Is there any way past that? Is there any way to ensure that I can't go and buy the cheapest, worst dried kilogram tin of Nescafe coffee at the cost of the environment, even though I'll happily drink that, mm -hmm. you know, at the cost of the environment? Is there any way to get past that where the only thing that we're shopping is actually good for the environment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is. I think the example, well, there's, you have a, sort of the top-down approach and you have the bottom-up approach. You know, I am a, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a stereotypical freedom-loving American. I prefer the the, 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 the bottom-up approach. I prefer the bottom-up approach. Yeah. But of course, you can always enact legislation, right? I mean, you could just, you can... But the, the, I mean, the problem from that, with that, from my perspective, is that is the the degree to which it's coercion and colonialism, right? Which is a, another problem. You know, we when I was in Uganda, um, people would buy, would burn charcoal and wood uh, cooking fires, um, and a lot of uh, Uganda is a crazy place, by the way, <laughs> as an aside here, um, because the only white people in Uganda were either South Africans uh, or they were missionaries or they were people from NGOs. Right. Um, and I mean, not the only white people, I guess there are others, too, but 
by and large, that's what people came to Uganda for. Uh, foreigners came to Uganda for. So you and a lot of these foreigners were very well-meaning, right? They were very concerned about the environment. They were concerned about saving people's souls. They were concerned about, you know, uh, ethical, you know, treatment of people. Um, these were their priorities when they came there. But there is a level of hubris, I think, when you come as a foreigner to somebody else's country and you say, this is the way you need to behave because that is the proper ethical way to, to behave, right? Um, and so, for example, I mentioned these stoves. And so these the Ugandans would burn wood and charcoal in the stoves. And there were a lot of foreigners there who were concerned about the environmental impact about this and would lecture these Ugandans. And it's like, these, you spent, you know, 500 bucks on your plane ticket to get over here. And that's their annual salary, you know. And you're here telling them that they're burning the wrong kind of wood in their fire, you know, um, to feed their kids. <laughs> so we can, and, and I wrote I wrote an article recently called uh, Why Coffee Farmers Are Poor, right? And it's a big problem. And it's it's not a problem. It's not that we should ignore the problem or pretend doesn't it's not say oh it's not our problem it's someone else's problem it's not that we should ignore it not that we shouldn't try but we have to be respectful i think of of the complexity of the situation and so for example um coffee as we mentioned is a tropical crop and so it's grown within the tropic of capricorn and tropic of cancer and those countries, all of the countries in the world, and I, in, in my article, I, I break down the, the per capita income of these different countries, all the countries in the world that can, that are able to grow coffee are something like five times poorer on average than country, than the, the, uh, what are they called? Uh, temperate zone countries. Okay. Just, just looking at temperature, not even like developed or undeveloped right just looking at their, their latitudes and longitudes um and there is a tremendous uh burden on countries within this tropical band to develop and, and if you think about it like for example roads right if you've ever been uh on a coffee origin trip you mentioned uh mexico i don't know how the roads were in, in veracruz mexico maybe they were great but in almost all coffee origins the roads are terrible. Why are they terrible? Is it because there's stupid, lazy people in charge? No, they're terrible because you have monsoons every year in that region. And so there's essentially nature itself is imposing a tax on living in those countries, right? Uh, whereas if you're in Canada, most of the year, you know, you have snow in some places, uh, but but otherwise, if it's just a giant flat, you know, the Trans-Canada Highway is just one big flat <laughs> temperate zone uh, road, right? Um, and so, and uh, a lot of technologies that have been developed in, in the temperate zones also do not translate immediately very well. You can't just pick up those technologies and, and use them in, in these other countries, you know? So uh, I guess my point is you can... The countries themselves, where they grow coffee, can make laws that say, like, no, they can make minimum wage laws, for example. Um, 
but we can't just make a minimum wage, you know, a hundred dollars an hour or no one would, would be working in these countries. Right. And, and, you know, so if we look at incomes of coffee farmers, and this is what I was looking at in this, this, this example here, one way of looking at it is like, oh my gosh, all of the coffee farmers in the world, most of them, 80% of them are making like five grand a year, something like that. You know, some, I'm pulling a number out of the air, but mm-hmm. something that looks horrible to us. And not only does it look horrible to us, it's actually less than the average income in these countries, right? But does that mean that uh, they shouldn't be growing coffee? Maybe, maybe it means they should, you know, maybe we should be encouraging them to, and this is one of the things I sort of tongue in cheek suggest in my article is that if we care about the coffee farmers, we should tell them to move to the cities and work for an IT company, right? Because then they'll, mm. they'll, you know, then they'll improve their, their standard of living. But it's not that easy if you if you're growing up in a rural, rural Colombia, right? Maybe coffee farming is a viable solution to you it's not doesn't provide a, a middle class income by you know european standards but but maybe that is you know the best solution for you in in your time in your area mm-hmm. so look these companies these countries could make laws to say uh we're not going to have child labor we're not going to have any environmentally unsound practices etc um and they i would think they would be in the best position to determine what the cost benefit that they could do for their, for their, for their people. And we could potentially in the West or, you know, in the, the Northern the temperate zones, try to put pressure on those countries uh, to, to change their laws. But then that goes back to the idea of colonialism. It's like, okay, we're, we're, we're giving you financial aid, but we're going to send an attache there to ensure that you're doing what we want you to do and what our priority and our priority in the West is, is environmental standards and climate change and your priority in Uganda might be making sure everybody has enough food to eat, you know? Um, so it's, a, it's, it's a complex, uh, situation. <laughs> yeah. And it's also kind of paradoxical, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the second Brazil has a high standard of living and the cost of labor increases in accordance with a high standard of living of a country entirely because as the labor market becomes more competitive mm. because there are more job opportunities for people they're going to start asking more for their all of a sudden 40 percent of the coffee market could get more expensive overnight yeah and uh it's kind of like what are the downstream consequences of that does that mean people are going to start buying coffee does that mean i like that to think that that would be okay production moves elsewhere you know you mentioned starbucks before and um in in most coffee, uh, most coffee shops, most coffee uh, sellers, the cost of the beans is not that much money, um, and you know they're just they're just paying market value um, for for the coffee, and and that's a whole other discussion, I guess. But you know the market does what it does. It you know when when prices are cheap, that discourages production, and when prices are expensive, that encourages production, and. That's kind of what we want the market to do. Um, but if coffee became two or three times more expensive, that is not going to translate into two or three times more expensive for the consumer, right? Because mm-hmm. if, co- if the price of a cup of coffee is $5, the cost of the beans might be $0.10, cents, right? And so if that doubles... Is it really that dramatic? It's, 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 a small, it's a very small portion of it. 
That's that's what five percent of the cost, or even less. Yeah, it's something like that. Um, so that it, see, that's a wild statistic. I'm, I wish you had said that earlier. <laughs> that's 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 super interesting, right? To try and think about what the what this market is. Mm. Okay, but sorry, go on. Well, but but that's you know, and that's it's an it's a it's a it's a a common thing that people talk about in the coffee industry because they're like, oh, we're not paying the co- the farmer enough. And this is another thing. It seems like there's room. <laughs> there is room. There's plenty of yeah. room for it. Yeah. And but the the thing is, that's <laughs> is that it it is not the job of coffee, and it should not be. I'm content. This is my contention. It's not the job of coffee to provide people a living. Coffee is a, a commodity, you know, and it's not to say that we should treat people badly or treat people unethically. But it's just like, um, like anything, you know, uh, if you, you might invent, you might become, you know, the, 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 the classic example is, is someone carving vulture statues. You might really love carving vulture statues, but that doesn't mean you deserve to have a living selling vulture statues, you know, and, and it's, it is a, a problem yeah, I'm going to sound like a complete jerk here, <laughs> but it's not the market's problem what people's living standards are, and it should not be the, the market's problem. It's a separate problem, in my opinion. It's not that it's not a problem. It is a problem, and we should be concerned with how people live, right? And we should care about our neighbors and, 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 and what their standard of living is, but you, you can't use that tool. It's not a tool that, that fits to to deal with that and it shouldn't right because if you consider what i'm concerned with and i don't mean like concerned like oh it it bothers me but concerned like that's my business is like the supply and demand of coffee right and so if we tell farmers we guarantee you not only a good living but or not only a sustainable living but but a good living we we promise you a middle-class lifestyle if you grow coffee what do you think is going to happen the way more people will try to become coffee exactly farmers and it'll drive the cost of labor down yeah it, everyone's gonna become a coffee farmer right because why would i become why would i waste my time trying to grow something else if i can be guaranteed a good living uh as a coffee farmer right and this happens on a small scale uh in in all kinds of in all sorts of ways because it's not that people haven't tried this because roasters, as I mentioned, the consumers do care about the producer of coffee. And I, there are some trade houses and there are some roasters who are like, I don't care what the price of coffee is. I will guarantee the consumer. I will guarantee my farmers a living wage. Right. And I'm going to pay for that. Right. But if they do that, what they're saying essentially is there first of all they're going to come up with their own calculation of what a living wage is right and what their own estimation of that might be right um and so they might they'll do some little calculation and say well i determined that the cost of production is a dollar 20 per pound and i believe that most farmers are this size and therefore i'll pay a dollar 50 per pound because that guarantees them a living wage income or whatever right and that's fine that's that's totally within their prerogative to do that but if they're doing that, what they're really saying is, I'm going to pay you for your coffee, and then I'm going to give you a donation on top of that. That is the X, right? And that farmer that sells them the coffee, 
they might be rich, right? But should we still pay them above uh, the market price, like uh, for that coffee? Or it could be, you know, or or then does the roaster then need to have personal relationships? And this goes back to like why we have a trade, you know, to begin with. Um, and the roaster is going to have personal relationships with individual farmers and say, I only buy from Ben. I only buy from Steve here and Judy, whatever. And they're my, they're my suppliers and I know them and we trust them, whatever. But what if someone offers them more money? You know, what if someone else says to Judy, Hey, I really love your, your coffee here. I want to buy from you. Then, then that roaster is like, Oh shoot. Now <laughs> I just lost my supplier. Right. So they've got to go. So I, it's, 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 it's quite complex, I think. And I think what the market should do is regulate the supply and demand of coffee. That's what the market is good at. If we try to force the market to do something besides that, then it's going to fail. And it's and it's mm -hmm. not going to... There'll be all types of unintended consequences. Exactly. I would rather people say like, look, I'm going to buy coffee for whatever the price of, whatever the price of coffee is, and I'm going to make it sustainable and certified and traceable, right? I'll follow these guidelines to at least... I'm not going to be contributing to any sort of unethical situation in the industry. And then I'm going to take a portion of my profits and I'm going to donate it to uh, climate change organizations and uh, rural welfare organizations in Colombia, you know, for example. And and those organizations, I think, are better suited to 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 find problems in, in those areas and, and address them um, than than just saying, I'm going to pay more money for my cup of coffee. So, but <laughs> you know, that's it, my, that's my probably unpopular opinion in the coffee market. I, there's probably a lot of other people in the coffee market is like, no, Ryan, you idiot. You just pay them more money for the coffee. Right. And that other people are entitled to that. Yeah, opinion, well, I mean, you know? it, it, it tracks with what you said, you know, classic free market guy. Yeah. I mean, that is the classic free market approach as am I, um, largely at least, obviously there's exceptions, but if you think about how amazing it is that this this one crop one plant with several species but one plant which can only be grown in a very specific part of the world as a cherry mm. can then be cleaned dried given to a giant market for different traders exported locally roasted packaged distributed and almost at least in my experience i've never been anywhere where coffee hasn't been an option <laughs> That type of distribution and ubiquitous availability is so remarkable, yeah. so remarkable. And so, although it makes it's kind of surprising that only five percent of the final product goes to the farmer, um, maybe that's the cost of having the coffee available. And it goes back to what we said earlier. You know, what's an alternative to you just paying with your wallet? Like I was in, um, I already mentioned that I was in Grand Canaria. In addition to that Starbucks yeah. uh, anecdote. I also just brought a small vacuum packed um, ground beans to make at home. And I was shocked. I was floored by the price. I think it was 500 grams. And it was two euros. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I just said to myself, how many, how many, how many plants of yield was this thing I was holding in my hand? And it came from Africa. And it's two euros. So I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, but I guess it's a testament to how sophisticated the market for coffee is. Yeah. I mean, and, and you think about it too, you know, it's also 
what the market is trying to do when they when they're paying the the farmers this price is I think it does basically take into account the cost of production, right? You're basically saying like, here's the cost of production, and I'm going to give you a premium or discount on this cost of production based on whether there's a lot of coffee available. And right now, farmers are pretty happy for the most part because coffee the price of coffee is doubled in the last uh you know year um due to supply concerns right there's a sh- been a shortage of coffee and uh, and so the market has been going nuts um where's the shortage come uh, from brazil <laughs> why what's there happened? was uh basically uh we had problem upon problem but it was essentially like first they had droughts coffee is a biannual crop so it tends to go you know it's the way that we as humans we like to personify things it helps us to understand them and um with coffee the coffee has a good yield a good year and then it needs to kind of rest for a year right um because because it expended a lot of resources to produce a big crop and so the next year it has a smaller crop so in general coffee has this biannual cycle especially in brazil and so we had last year we had a down year uh in uh well not last year now i i you know it's part consequence of getting older i always think of uh yeah but the the 1920 uh crop um was a down year in brazil 2020 yes now you've gone back 100 years <laughs> oh so um oh you mean 1920 when you talk about um coffee crops it tends to straddle two years so the 1920 crop is 2019, uh, okay. 2020. Apologies. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. was like, <laughs> no, that's an important distinction. <laughs> we get used to saying yeah. sort of lingo-y things and forget, you know. Um, but at any rate, there was a down year. And then uh, we had, uh, uh, so let's see, I'm getting confused here. The most recent crop was the, 1920 was a down crop, then 20, so let's see, 2020, we're in, we're about to have the 22 23 crop in coffee um which was supposed to be a bumper crop it was supposed to be a big yield crop um our last crop was a down crop and that was supposed to be a down crop but it was worse than people had expected because of drought right but the market was kind of like okay well it, that's fine it was down crop but there's plenty of coffee around we have stocks we have inventory available um but then there was a frost on top of that um, and that frost affected this coming year's crop, the uh, 22 crop. Um, and so now what was supposed to have been a really big crop is now a compromised crop. And so the market is kind of going nuts to compensate for that. But what I was going to say before was that um, when we think about that that cost of that cup of coffee, like we talked about before, and how such a small percentage of it is, is going to the farmer, um, that is because the there's a lot of costs in between when that coffee is grown till when it's served to you in a cafe, right? And so we like the farmer. People like farmers, right? That's why in the US, like we always have like, we always pass all kinds of laws like to benefit farmers because like it's romantic and we like them and they, you know, salt of the earth people and all that. And yeah, 100%. so they have a cultural affinity in every single country. Yeah. The amount of subsidies that dairy farmers get is ridiculous. We're going to talk about commodities here. You know, exactly. Milk. It's ridiculous. Um, and yeah. in, in coffee, you know, we like the coffee farmers. Like we do. Like we do. We care about the coffee farmers. We romanticize them. Um, and uh, and I've known plenty of coffee farmers. 
and they are good people and I do like them. Right. And I want the, the best for them. Uh, but so we're always like kind of appalled that they get such a small percentage of the, of, uh, of the, the total cup. Right. But if you think about it, like what's the relative cost of say, um, growing coffee on a farm in Colombia or, you know, Ethiopia or wherever. Um, and then also think about what's the cost of processing that, you know, for to process it, you need a large factory essentially, uh, with capital equipment, right. And you need people to run that, um, you, what's the process cost of, uh, bagging it and the labor of, you know, taking that coffee once it's there and put it into separate bags, transporting it, uh, putting it onto, um, containers or whatever, and then shipping it, right. You had to move, ship it from, you know, across the world, literally across the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then once it gets to the destination, you're paying taxes on it, right? Then it gets to the roaster. The roaster has the costs of, and now we're not in uh, origin markets anymore. Now we're in a destination market, right? You're in Sweden. Uh, I would imagine that if you hire, if 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 pop culture says anything to me, that if you <laughs> if you hire someone in Sweden, you probably have to pay. Uh, health insurance and pension and um all of these it's labor costs are huge they're huge and probably and the tax to import it as well actually it's funny you mentioned sweden. It's, it's real kind estate of absurd. right yeah. i don't know how much real estate is in sweden um but if you want to have a, fa- a roasting plant or whatever you got to do that mm-hmm. and that's before it even gets to the cafe once it gets to the cafe you know then uh that place also needs to pay rent they have to pay their employees and pay all their health insurance and everything and you know you often give free milk with, you know, we talked about milk a second ago. You'll often give free milk mm. and free sugar with uh, coffee, right? But that's not free to the, <laughs> to the, uh, to the seller of the coffee, right? So yeah. all of those other, so you basically have two other commodities that you're giving away for free uh, in addition to this one that you're, that you're selling. So we, we look at the coffee and we think like, oh, why isn't the farmer getting more of it? But the, the, all those other costs are also added in, packaged into yeah. that cup of coffee that you get at the yeah. uh, at the coffee shop. Yeah, I'm happy you did that. You broke down the whole supply chain of it because um, it was uh, when I, like I said, the ideas on ice. But when I was looking at it, I sort of just came to the conclusion that no one makes money in the coffee industry. <laughs> like perhaps perhaps the trader does, but from what I was looking at it, if I wanted to be a specialty seller. Uh, I didn't make any money. The roaster that I was speaking to and his anecdotal experience, they don't make any money. Um, Basically, no one makes money. And just to give you a really tangible example, uh, Company X, who I think should remain nameless, (laughs) just in case, they they roast the, they have the contract to produce all the beans for Espresso House. And Espresso House is the Scandinavian Starbucks. Mm -hmm. They have hundreds of locations, uh, presumably have a required tonnage per day of ready to roast beans um, throughout Finland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, uh, maybe Iceland too. Anyway, this very boutique specialty coffee brand who I was speaking with sort of, he just said, oh, by the way, you know, this is what we're doing. And he sort of was saying that that alone wouldn't actually work as a business for them because the, even at the tonnage that they are roasting per day, the margin is not enough to uh, account for all of the different labor costs that go into roasting that many beans. And that was a real light bulb moment for me. Like, this is crazy. I think everyone in that whole supply chain just takes the thinnest razor margin 
and whilst you can they do and, and that's and rightly so that's, and yeah. the same thing with the trade honestly too is because you know the trade is is fungible the trade is not you know you think like coffee is a commodity like if you're a roaster you do not care whether you're buying from ecom neumann noble sukafina whatever like they're just they're all delivering you the same beans like you have no loyalty essentially to the trade house and so commodities notoriously have razor thin margins um because a commodity by definition is indistinguishable from a, from any other commodity right um so the when i was in the trade i remember uh one of my mentors there said ryan if i make two cents of margin on uh on coffee then then i did a good job you know <laughs> Yeah. So the type of volume you have to do to justify that is, is exactly insane. well. That's why you have you know yeah. the the history of the trade houses is interesting too, because and we're running up on time here, so <laughs> I can't go too deep into it. But uh, there's a good book called Merchants of Grain, um, which talks about the uh, the grain industry, uh, but it's an it's analogous to the coffee industry and what. What you'll find is that there's there's these family dynasties in uh it's what yeah it's one of the only industries that has um giant corporate family dynasties and what that the reason that is is because these coffee trading firms all were founded in in, in or many of them were founded in in the mid to late 1800s and that's because Coffee is an international crop, right? Uh, and it's a commodity. So because of that, uh, it required global companies and it required economies of scale, right? So you needed uh, you need people in Brazil, you need them in Vietnam, you need them in Ethiopia, wherever, and you need them in all the destination markets too. So in the mid-19th century, that was when technology was sufficiently powerful transportation especially shipping you had railroads you had you know um intercontinental travel was was reliable at that point still took a long time um and so at that point that's when these sort of global trade houses emerged and became these powerhouses because they they because the economy of scale was so important it's sort of that was what survived and the reason they're family organizations is because these dynasties would essentially they'd send one son to brazil they'd send one son to switzerland they'd send one son to new york or whatever and or a cousin or whatever uh, because you couldn't trust even though it, there was enough reliability in the transportation it still was you know a month minimum you know to get <laughs> a, a letter from london to new york or whatever it was uh, so you, you would only trust your family. So you would put, so it created these sort of family dynasties that lasted and, um, are con continued to this day. Yeah. On, uh, the topic of good books about commodities, did you read, uh, the world for sale? No, I've, uh, I've had it recommended though. I'm going to have to, now I'm going to have to actually check it out <laughs> as a commodities trader. I think it's, it's probably required reading. Um, but they, uh, mostly cover oil obviously, which is, just a whole other beast in its own right. Because something interesting about commodities as well is that, you know, they're not just this sort of medium of exchange, you know, they, they do serve a legitimate purpose. You take oil, I mean, it runs the world, right? You take corn, it 
is the base food for so many uh, products. You take coffee, it's ingrained into people's cultures and people have it every single day. I drink shit tons of it. Most people in Scandinavia do. Like, um, so uh, yeah, really interesting. But like you said, we are, we are uh, coming up on time. Um, I liked the fact 5% of the total, 5% of your latte is actually going to the farmer. Um, the 40% is from Brazil. 20% is from Vietnam, the way Robusta and Arabica is split. Are there any other interesting facts about coffee that would surprise me and the listener? Oh, interesting facts about coffee that would surprise you. Um, well, there is a, um, there's an oft-repeated myth that coffee is the second most popularly traded commodity in the world after energy. And that's actually not true. <laughs> I saw a study done that had it be the, put it at the 22nd <laughs> uh, most popularly traded. But it, but it is very popular. And the reason that it's popular is because it's volatile. And coffee is particularly volatile because it has, um, in, if you go back to my economics 101 class here, it has inelastic supply and inelastic demand. Um, because as we mentioned, it's a tree crop. And so if you want to increase supply, it's going to take you several years to get that supply increase, right? To plant new area and have those trees mature sufficiently uh, to, to, to produce. I mean, if, think about like if it was apple trees or something, right? And you want to create more apple trees, like you can't just do that overnight, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and the demand side is also very inelastic. Like you said, you have you you're probably not price sensitive at all to coffee, at least in the quantity that you drink. It might you might be price sensitive in like okay, if coffee's ten dollars for a latte at Starbucks, maybe I'll I'll brew it at home instead, right? But you're still going to have that cup exactly. of coffee, yeah. right? <laughs> so uh, exactly. people tend to be very um, uh, consistent in in the amount that they drink. Um, so if there's a weather issue and coffee's dependent on the weather, um, then your supply will get thrown out of whack. And so you will have, uh, you can have years of, of very high prices or very low prices. And that's why, that's why speculators love to trade it. Nice. So that's a good one. Myth busting the <laughs> fact that it's the second most traded commodity. Cause yeah, you do hear that a lot, don't you? Um, though I guess it makes no sense. Um, okay. Well, um, I think... Ryan, that was Ryan. It feels so weird. Yeah. Someone else, Ryan. <laughs> uh, I think that was um, very interesting. I'd love to leave you with two questions that I try to ask every guest, um, if you wouldn't mind. The first is if you could name a country looking forward into the future that you are particularly bullish on, and it doesn't have to be coffee specific. Um, a country that I'm particularly bullish on. Uh... Um, that's, it's funny. Cause I, I'm like, I'm so f focused on, uh, the, the two that come to mind are the U S and China. Um, but the, <laughs> I, I'm like very hesitant there because I don't, you know, the, those two are at each other's throats constantly. And, um, it's mm. not clear to me, which one is really, you know, going to dominate in, in, in the near future. And, and you can make the case on both of them. And you could also make the case for both of them that they've reached their peak, 
you know, <laughs> uh, and, mm. or are overvalued. So those are the two I've been thinking a lot about. The other one I, I think about all the time and, and, and focused on so much is Brazil. But, uh, and I want to be bullish on Brazil, but um, and, uh, mm. if you know any Brazilians, they're famously bearish on themselves more than anybody, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but Brazil's like the perennial disappointment. Yeah, my brother it? called it. People are always touting uh, it. To tomorrow's become. world of the future. <laughs> it's always, it's always tomorrow's yeah. <laughs> world of the future. But uh, mm. well, you've got to you've got to read Peter Zihan, um, or at least watch a few interviews I with will. him. He's a probably your country's most famous geopolitical analyst, and uh, it's funny he is uh, he gives quite a bad. Um, prediction for Brazil, uh, but also uh, an extremely optimistic one for the United okay. States. And I'm about to publish an article called "Is China Doomed?" Oh. So, and it's mostly off the work of Peter Zihan. He's have you read you, but he, um, uh, the next hundred years? Yeah, by George. Uh, yeah, George Friedman. Yeah. And he also did the next ten years too, where he yeah. recanted a lot of that. But it reminded me of what you were, uh, yeah, <laughs> what you were saying. Um, yeah, well, actually, George Freeman was the he was the mentor to ah, Peter cool. Zihan. Um, yeah, Stratford was like their geopolitical firm, and Peter Zihan had now he's his own thing, Zihan Geopolitics. Mm. But um, yeah, lo- they pretty much have the same worldview, those two well, guys. But it's this notion that America, after World War Two, ensured the security of international mm. trade which fostered globalization to drive down the cost of labor and Mm. transport mostly internationally to allow for the emergence of all these different markets. Because, you know, as you know, so many markets, I mean, look at coffee, coffee, coffee would not be as ubiquitously traded and available as it was if you couldn't safely get it from Uganda Mm. to Stockholm. Right. And um, because the U S dominates deep water transport uh, lanes and routes and ensure the security of trade in these routes. It means that the cost of transport is much lower and therefore all the unintended consequences of allowing for lower trade is what globalization is. And ultimately, because America ensures that China is, uh, you know. You know, it's interesting. I remember they were talking because this came up that sort of same concept. because you remember like 10 years ago, piracy was a uh, sort of on everybody's mind again. We had all these like pirates in Somalia and whatever. And like, and, and that was a recent phenomenon that people were sort of surprised about because of this sort of post-World War II, you know, Pax Americana, um, uh, I guess we gotten a little spoiled, right? <laughs> Not realizing that for most of human history, I guess piracy was a thing, right? Um, and then suddenly we were mm. surprised about it again. Oh. Yeah, it was incredibly dangerous to just sail yeah. out into the ocean. Um, yeah, I'm actually, I was like, um, but yeah, go ahead. Well, furthermore to it, uh, basically, it, for the bearish case for China, is that they have demographic issues that are sort of beyond yeah, saving. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, they're the oldest population in history. And they're... Uh, main reason for their economic growth was because they had extremely low uh, labor rates. And that's why they became the manufacturers of the world. But as the middle class has risen in China, so has the cost of labor. And so forth. They're no, therefore, they're no longer cost competitive on what has been historically the whole reason that they were so economically successful. So they have this very, very Im- Im- imposing 
bomb that's about to explode when very good the oldest population in history retires and the uh, generation under them are not producing enough taxable receipts to be able to pay any sort of pension. And so you're just going to have a total collapse. They have one of the lowest birth rates in the world. That's um, funny. I saw... There, you know, there's myriad awesome, issues. There's a, a guy I follow on LinkedIn. I think his name is James Eagle. Um, but he, he does... Um, visualizations data visualizations and one of the ones that really struck me is that in a healthy demographic uh economy um you have essentially a pyramid right with the most people on the bottom are the young people right and then you've got su just uh successively smaller groups of people till you have a very small group of very old people on the top right and that's a sustainable mm -hmm. uh demographic right uh, because you've got, you know, a, a large group of people coming in to kind of support the people uh, uh, that as they, you know, as they need it. And I think they said that uh, they showed up China's pyramid was essentially inverted, right? Where you have mm. the, the whole, yeah. you're going to have a, a huge band of, of older people on the top and a successively smaller significantly more supporting yeah. them on, on the bottom. Um, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. you have also the, the male female uh, problems from the one child policy as well. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, the split is 56, yeah. 44 in favor of men. And in a country of 1.4 billion people, that translates to 40 million people. There are 40 million more men in China than there are women. Um, and that's in itself just a completely unsolvable yeah. problem because they also have extraordinarily low immigration rates. So you can't even bring in women for these people. Uh, it's like it's a... Yeah, it's a basket case. All and it's all, also, all that's around. also potentially, I mean, that's one of the, you know, one of the scary things about China too, is that also makes a war um, almost, uh, what's the word, appealing for the leadership there, right? Right, you, yeah. At least go out well, on top. Well, because you have to do something with all of these men. Yeah, yeah. No, precisely. And the, Yeah. And there's also a giant undocumented population in China. But thankfully as well, if you, if you I think if you read or ingest Zaihan and take his word for what he says, then you can sleep easy because according to him, at least, should a conflict flare up, um, the United States would be able to deal with them, no problem. That's yeah, says, well, it's uh, it's complex. And, you know, when I... When I yeah, but you you uh, used to serve in the military. Uh, yeah, I was I was in the Marine Corps a um, long time ago now. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and I've got my old uh, uh, this little T-shirt up there. This is actually um, mm. signed by Arlie Ermy, who, if you know who Arlie Ermy is, if you ever seen the movie Full Metal Jacket, um, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, he was the the drill instructor in yeah. that movie, and so he he was a okay. he was a real Marine. Um, and Stanley Kubrick hired him to be a consultant for his actor in that movie and to like teach the, the actor how to behave like a drill instructor. But he was so good at his mm. job that they just got rid of the actor and had him play the, <laughs> the role. And so within the Marine yeah. Corps, he's like very, um, he's like, he was iconic. Unfortunately, he's, he's passed away. Um, and he was a big yeah. supporter of the Marines and he would, he came out when we were in, uh, overseas, um, and, uh, you know, I think that was in Bahrain um, uh, during the Iraq war. So he came out to kind of support, you know, for morale or whatever uh, and signed my, my thing. Mm -hmm. But when I was in 
college, I, I went to Harvard after I got out of the Marines and I was a, a political science major. So that was like, a, I, I love discussing all this stuff here. And, um, and I took a class called the future of war, um, with a, a professor there, his name escapes me now, but he's, uh, you know, he was been involved in, you know, us policy for years and everything. And even back then we were talking about different, uh, scenarios and, uh, so this would have been early 2000s. And one of the big issues that was concerning was the Senkaku Dayu Islands, um, you know, which has come to pass now. That's become like something that uh, is, you know, one of the, the geopolitical flashpoints is these disputed islands in the China Sea uh, that, um, you know, are essential for essentially for shipping lanes. Um, but, uh, I forgot why I brought that up, but um, in that book that we mentioned with the few, the uh, the next hundred years or whatever, they had talked about how mm -hmm. the plan with China had always been kind of um, uh, at least at least from from the the Western you know NATO perspective was like okay we welcome them into the World Trade Organization we welcome them into um, you know the global. Uh, economy and as they get richer they will liberalize right um, and instead that didn't really happen and that was what they predicted in that next hundred years was that you know the the east coast of China is very wealthy and that um, the as groups of people become wealthy they demand more access to power right and and so they sort of predicted this sort of breaking up of China but I think what they didn't anticipate was was how willing the Chinese party, the, the the party is in China to, to or how important it is for them to maintain control, and they've really doubled down on you know all kinds of um, sort of repressive uh, methods, right, or, or tools um, in terms of social media and you know artificial intelligence and all of these uh, ways. I just I just saw a podcast with uh general mcmaster uh who was the former um who was he not homeland security he was uh, he was like the yeah, head of the military national right yeah Secretary he was like State national security advisor i think i think he's national security advisor yeah 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 under trump um, yeah and he's a nonpartisan guy um you know he's he likes you know he's he, and he's not a, he's not much of a trump fan either <laughs> uh but uh you know no. but he you know that's his business It'd be hard to be a fan of him after you work directly with him. From all I would course. imagine so, uh, but um, he he was talking about how the the threat from China is really. A totally, guess we'll see. Required reading, right. Peter Zeihan. I, I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Um, finally, Ryan. Uh, if you could witness a conversation, this is my favorite question. If you could witness a conversation between any two people in history, dead or alive, no language barrier. So if you could listen to a podcast, who are you listening uh, Jesus to? Jesus and Pontius Pilate. I want to see that uh, conversation. And Pontius Pilate. Okay, <laughs> the nice one. That's a new one. Jesus is probably really? the most common answer. Yeah, take the wheel. But, yeah, <laughs> it's usually Jesus, Buddha, yeah. something like that. But okay, yeah, interesting. So why is that? You just want um, to... 
your discourse? Well, I think it's a supply and demand. Uh, I think that's probably the, one of the most scarce uh, interviews available. Uh, so that, I thought that would be, uh, I thought that'd be interesting. Um, but uh, I, I'm a student of religion as well. I think the, uh, the Bible is just a, a fascinating book. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that dynamic was, uh, a quite, a, a quite interesting one there. Um, you know, if you, if you read the back and forth between, um, Jesus and Pontius Pilate, cause it's, uh, I mean, it was, it was sort of like a, uh, you know, two ships sort of passing in the night type of thing where it was like, neither of them really wanted to be there, you know? <laughs> Pontius Pilate kind of was like, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't see anything wrong with this guy and was like, I don't really understand why we, I have to deal with him, but I do. And Jesus mm. obviously didn't really want to be there either, you know, and, and there meaning in, in prison, you know? Um, so I think that would have been an interesting conversation. hundred percent. Well, Ryan, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, Ryan. Um, I get the sense we probably could have spoken for a bit longer, but uh, I hope we did a little bit of justice to the yeah, coffee I industry hope so. <laughs> in that. Cool. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me. I hope right. this was uh, useful for your listeners. No, my absolute right. pleasure. I hope as well. Bye. Cheers. Well, that was fantastic. Thanks again, Ryan, for giving me your time, mate. Um, for anyone who wants to start trading coffee, do reach out to Ryan on Twitter or through his business, The Coffee Trading Academy, which is coffeetradingacademy.com. And the links to both his Twitter and that website are going to be in the show notes, so you'll be able to access them there, no problem. If you liked this chat, I think you might be into some of the other more geopolitical-focused episodes as well. So I can throw you back to James Robinson, episode number 24, the author of Why Nations Fail, several with Tim Marshall, I think 13 and 31. He's the author of Prisoner of Geography and Power of Geography. But then there is also my most previous previous episode with Spencer Roberts on the degradation of agriculture worldwide. Um, and so I know that we gave a quite an optimistic picture of, of coffee here, but it is a... But it is a part of this, agri- this broader agricultural picture. And this chat that I had with Spencer really gives quite a depressing outlook on the food that we're eating because the food as it's being grown in this giant agricultural complex. So help yourself to a healthy dose of that podcast. It might ruin your appetite, but it's kind of in line, those that I just mentioned with the theme of today's show. But finally, my ambition for the podcast. I hope to corner the market for eclectic curiosities in whatever country it is that you, my dear listener, who these audio waves are coming through massaging the lobes i hope to corner the part the podcast market for eclectic curiosities in your market whichever country it is you're listening in from whatever state city ethnicity demographic age gender all of it in your specific corner i want to be the eclectic curiosity podcast for you and everyone else in the group and uh to do that requires a lot more feedback into the algorithm. So I would ask that not only you leave a review yourself, not only you go into your Spotify, leave five stars, go into your Apple and leave five stars and a very nice comment, but instead you take it a step further. You grab your boyfriend's phone, your girlfriend's phone. You do the same with them. You start pulling people over as you walk past them on the street. Next time you're in a Zoom call with your colleagues at work, just stop what they're doing, hold up the conversation and insist that everyone go and review and say really nice things about me and my podcast. 
That would be amazing. The podcast algorithms are in the stone age. It's the only thing they're paying attention to. So it's the best thing that you could do for me and the show. And so with that, I hope you really enjoyed this. And again, cheers to Ryan and tune in again. See you next time. Ciao.